Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan attorney Kevin Rotke joins us now to discuss a couple of decisions issued in May. Kevin, in ESIP Series 2 versus Pusen Life USA, the Federal Circuit held that a PTAB determination about whether all real parties in interest are identified in an IPR petition is not appealable. Can you tell us a little bit about this decision? Sure. The ESIP decision actually had two different holdings. In the first one, the Federal Circuit affirmed an obvious determination by the board. And in the second one, it interpreted the Supreme Court's April 2020 decision in Thrive versus Click to Call where the Supreme Court held that certain decisions by the Patent Office at institution of an inter-parties review petition are unappealable and unreviewable on appeal. ESIP was the Federal Circuit's first interpretation of that Thrive decision, and in it, the Federal Circuit held that when the PTAB determines whether a petition for inter-parties review identifies real parties in interest, whether it had properly identified all of the real parties in interest, is not a reviewable decision on appeal. And can you just remind us what the Supreme Court held in Thrive? I can. And I'm going to give you a little background as well on the facts of Thrive so that it makes a little more sense as we expand on ESIP. In April 2020, the Supreme Court decided the Thrive versus Click-to-Call Technologies decision. It was a 7-2 split decision at the Supreme Court. And what the court was asked to decide was whether PTAB and the board's determination that an inter-parties review petition is timely filed can be reviewed on appeal. There's a statute in the inter-parties review statute that says the board cannot institute an IPR petition if the petition was filed more than one year after the petitioner or certain entities related to the petitioner were sued for patent infringement on the patent that's being challenged. Thrive, the petitioner, filed an IPR challenge against Click-to-Call's patent, and Click-to-Call argued that the petition should have been time-barred under that statute because an entity that Thrive had subsequently acquired had been sued for patent infringement a number of years before the petition was filed, and therefore the petition should be barred. The PTAB decided that the Thrive petition was not time-barred and ultimately issued a final written decision finding about 13 claims of Click-to-Call's patent unpatentable. Click-to-Call appealed that decision to the Federal Circuit, and the primary argument they made on appeal was that because the petition should have been found to be time-barred, the Federal Circuit should vacate the final written decision of the Patent Office. And the Federal Circuit agreed with Click-to-Call in that decision and ultimately vacated the final written decision. Perhaps not surprisingly, Thrive was not pleased with this, and Thrive petitioned for Supreme Court review, and that review was granted. And the Supreme Court took up the question of whether or not that time bar decision should be appealable and whether or not an appeals court determination can retroactively find that an instituted petition should not have been instituted based on the time bar. And the Supreme Court said they can't. It reiterated some holdings from an earlier decision in the Supreme Court that questions that are, quote, closely tied to the application or interpretation of statutes related to inter-parties review are not appealable. And after looking at the statutes, looking at the purpose behind inter-parties review and other post-grant proceedings, the Supreme Court held that the particular provision related to the one-year time bar 
falls within this closely tied questions of the PTAB's determination to institute inter partes review and determined that it's not an appealable decision and cannot be reviewed on appeal. They did it for a number of reasons. I won't go into those here, but because of that, the Supreme Court vacated the Federal Circuit's decision and said that the Federal Circuit didn't have the authority to hear the time bar appeal and the Federal Circuit should instead dismiss the time bar appeal. Okay. And with that background, how does the Federal Circuit's ESIP decision relate to Thrive and what does it say? ESIP begins to consider the scope of Thrive and what it means to be, quote, closely tied to the statutes that relate to institution decisions by the board. And specifically in ESIP, the Federal Circuit was asked to consider whether the petition requirement to identify all real parties in interest is one of those closely tied decisions to institution and whether or not that can be appealed. In the inter-parties review statutes, there are several requirements that are stated in order for the board to institute inter-parties review. The one at issue here was the real party interest one, but there are others that have not yet been decided by the court. So the Federal Circuit looked at the Thrive decision, looked at the Supreme Court's previous decision in Quozo, and determined that like the time bar provision, the real party and interest provision is a requirement that is closely tied to the board's decision to institute review. And because of that, it can't be appealed. So where that leaves us in the landscape right now on closely tied decisions is we have the original Thrive decision where the Supreme Court said that questions related to the one-year time bar are not appealable because they're closely tied to institution. And now we have the Federal Circuit looking at Thrive and saying that the real party and interest identification is also closely tied and not appealed. And what were ESIP's arguments for why Thrive did not apply? Initially, the briefing on the ESIP case was done before the Supreme Court issued its Thrive decision. So in the original briefing, neither party had the benefit of the Thrive determination. But what ESIP argued in that briefing was that the board's real party interest decision was actually part of a final written decision, not part of an institution decision. If you look at the history of the inter partes review in ESIP versus Pusen, at institution, the board said that it was making a preliminary real party and interest decision and that it hadn't been fully decided. And then in the final written decision, it made a further determination on real party and interest, found that it was proper, and then proceeded to the merits of the case. ESIP's argument was that because this went into the final written decision for the determination, it was part of a final written decision, which is appealable, and not part of an institution decision, which may not have been appealable. So ESIP effectively argued that it wasn't an institution decision in this particular case, and that accepting Pusen's arguments that real party and interest is not appealable would effectively insulate all real party and interest decisions from any sort of appellate review. After the Thrive decision came down, the party submitted supplemental briefing in order to provide their thoughts on the Thrive decision to the Federal Circuit. And those were short letter briefs, about two pages each. Pusen, unsurprisingly, submitted the Thrive case, and argued that it precluded appellate review of the real party and interest finding. ESIP responded, arguing that the real party and interest provision governs petitions as a whole and is part of a jurisdictional issue that can be appealed, and that the appeal of real party and interest is in line with the Supreme Court's guidance that there's a strong presumption in favor of repeal. We now know after the ESIP decision that the Federal Circuit agreed with Pusen, found that real party interest aligns with the Thrive decision and is not reviewable on appeal. So what is the final takeaway for petitioners and, and patent owners at the PTAB? 
I think at this point, there's a couple on both sides for both petitioners and patent owners. First, by determining that real parties and interest are not reviewable on appeal and that Thrive time bar decisions are not reviewable on appeal, I think we're going to see a shift in those arguments and we're going to see patent owners trying to make those arguments before institution, whereas in inter-parties review and related post-grant proceedings, they may have been waiting to make those arguments until after institution, but before final written decision. And I think that's going to shift the discovery of those issues, or it could shift the discovery of those issues prior to institution, which is going to front load some of the work for petitioners, patent owners, and even the board in order to flesh out these decisions, turn them into institution fights as opposed to arguments that are made after institution, and could just increase the burden and discovery there. Second, I think we're also going to see petitioners start to argue on appeal that other decisions made by the Patent Office fall under the non-appealable provisions of Section 314. What those are, we'll probably have to wait and see. But as I mentioned before, there are several requirements that are listed, and patent owners may try to raise those as a reason that petitions should not have been instituted or that board decisions should be vacated. And now we'll probably see petitioners start to push back on that more and say that they're not appealable under Thrive and under the determination in ESIP. And I expect that we'll see the Federal Circuit and possibly even the Supreme Court weigh in on that and interpret those other provisions that may be related to institution rather than the merits of the final written decision and determine that other parts of a board decision are not, in fact, appealable. Third, the Thrive decision left open the possibility for mandamus. If you remember when I was discussing the ESIP decision, ESIP made the argument that making real party and interest determinations non-appealable would effectively insulate them from review. Thrive put in a footnote that said that mandamus may be a possibility for these kinds of institution questions in some cases. So I expect we might see another flurry of mandamus activity at the federal circuit surrounding institution decisions perhaps where a patent owner feels that something was improperly decided and that a real party in interest was sued and was therefore time barred, or a petitioner might file a mandamus petition where the time bar was applied and they feel that it was improperly applied because it shouldn't have been met. In early inter partes review practice, there was a bit of a flurry of mandamus activity. That has since died down in the last couple of years. But after Thrive and ESIP, I think we might see that start to pick up again until the Federal Circuit brings some guidance to these issues. Okay, well, let's move on to a different but somewhat related case decided by the Federal Circuit, Schwindemann versus Arkwright Advanced Coding, Inc. What was the issue in this case? This is a bit of a related issue. It still relates to standing, the ability of someone to bring a proceeding. This one relates to district court and when a plaintiff is considered a patentee such that it can bring an infringement case in district court. In order to sue for patent infringement, party must be what is called a patentee. And that means that if they were not the original patent owner, they have received certain rights in order to bring that lawsuit. And the case in Schwindemann v. Arkwright deals with whether Ms. Schwindemann was a patentee under the statute because she was a subsequent assignee of a number of patents. By way of background, she originally worked at a paper coding company where she was named as the sole inventor on one patent and a co-inventor on a couple of other patents. When the company ceased operation, it owed Ms. Schwindemann a substantial amount of money in back pay and commissions. As part of a settlement related to that, the company agreed to assign Ms. Schwindemann the patents that she was named as an inventor on, or certain patents that she was named as an inventor on. 
There was, however, a defect in that assignment, and that defect wasn't discovered until after Ms. Schwindemann filed her case against Arkwright. And the court at the district court level looked at the assignment, looked at the history between the parties, and decided that under Minnesota law, which it was applying, Ms. Schwindemann was a patentee, and the court retroactively reformed the defective assignment to conform to the party's original interpretation and their original intent that the last patent should have been assigned to Ms. Schwindemann, and then it proceeded with a full trial that went on appeal to the federal circuit. And what did the federal circuit decide in that case? On appeal, the federal circuit affirmed. They agreed that the district court properly reformed the contract in order to reflect the party's original intent to assign the last patent to Ms. Schwindemann, thereby making her a patentee that could sue for infringement in district court. And the court's opinion considered several of the recent opinions that issued from both the Supreme Court and 2019 from the Federal Circuit dealing with this issue of standing. And it found that when the court looked at the background, the history, the intent of the parties, the actions that Ms. Schwindemann and her previous employer took after executing the original assignment that was defective, all suggested and confirmed that they intended to assign this last patent to Ms. Schwindemann. It then looked to Minnesota law because part of the determination of assignment is a state law issue, depending on the state law of the contract. Here, that was Minnesota law. And it applied that Minnesota law and found that it is proper for courts to reform contracts that do not accurately reflect the party's intent when certain criteria are met. And here that criteria was met, the district court found it was met, and therefore it could reform the contract to conform to the party's original intent and make Ms. Schwindemann an assignee. And the effect of that was that the federal circuit could then decide the remaining issues on appeal. It did not have to send the case back to the district court for a whole new trial in which Ms. Schwindemann would have had to refile the case and everything would have had to proceed again at the district court level. So it ended up being more expeditious for Ms. Schwindemann for the federal circuit to find that she was a patentee. But there was a dissent in the case. What did it say? That's right. Judge Reyna wrote a separate dissent. And Judge Reyna thought that the issue in the case was not a statutory one or a contractual one, but rather a constitutional one. And that Ms. Schwindemann did not have Article Three standing in order to pursue the original case because at the time that she filed the case in 2011, she was not the proper assignee of that third patent. And Judge Reyna pointed to the district court's factual finding that the original assignment was deficient. And it did not assign that third patent to Ms. Schwindemann, but rather it was the reform by the court that retroactively put that assignment in place. And Judge Reina said this was improper and it created a constitutional defect, not a contractual defect. And when you have a constitutional defect, the only appropriate remedy would be to dismiss the case and force Ms. Schwindemann to refile. But this is a dissent, and so it's not the decision of the federal circuit, but it is something, I think, to watch going forward to see if others pick up on that as a reason to distinguish different factual situations from the Schwindemann case. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you. Our guest has been Kevin Rotke, an attorney at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com.